everybody, and welcome to another episode of Book Goodies Author Series of Podcasts. I'm Deborah Carney, your host, and I have with me today a very special author, Barry Atkins. Hi, Barry. How are you doing? Good. How are you, Deborah? I'm fine. Um, you have uh, a story that you had to tell in a very special way, and that you um, actually had a very interesting journey. And the story is about that journey. So why don't you introduce yourself to our listeners and give us a little background. So my name is Barry Atkins. Um, On July 10th of 2005, my son started the process of moving out on his own. Uh, They decided to throw, his friends decided to throw a little housewarming party for him that night. Sometime around midnight, they started doing shots. Uh, He passed out. His buddy laid him on his side in bed in case he vomited. Uh, While he was passed out, the party was still going on. They shaved his head and his legs. Uh, But one of his friends was a little worried about him, so he went back in to check on him around 4 a.m. and found him uh, blue and not breathing. Um, He died alone in the hospital uh, while I slept peacefully in my bed. Yeah, that's, um, I have a little bit of a similar story. My son died alone in the hospital um, after a car accident while I was on the train going to the hospital. Um, I was in New York City and he was in Camden, New Jersey. So I, you know, they tell you that parents know these things. And what was really odd, and I don't know if this is your experience as well, um, I was kind of shielded it's like whoever is in charge of us kind of shielded me and yet when I started telling people that Danny had passed away three different people had premonitions that day about me losing one of my children but they didn't know which one and I actually had a premonition about losing my other son and I said that, um, if I said to myself, because I was on a bus, and I said to myself, well, people can get a hold of me if there's a problem. There's, there, you know, nothing is wrong because people can get a hold of me if there was a problem. And, uh, you know, two hours later, I got the phone call. So you're sleeping peacefully, and the phone rings, and it's the hospital, or it's his friend, or... Uh, no, actually, the next morning, uh, Sunday morning, I was uh, sitting in the living room drinking coffee with my wife, and the doorbell rang, and uh, it was the police at my door, and there was actually two policemen and someone in plain clothes, but it never occurred to me that something bad had happened. I thought it probably had something to do with a neighbor or a dog barking or something like that. Mm-hmm. Turns out that was not at all the case. Wow. That's that's pretty difficult to take on. And then you had a unique way, a unique way of going through um, the grieving process. Why don't you explain that to us? So obviously, um, after you lose a child, there's a lot of self pity, and and uh, you know you're you're just devastated by the news. Um, but one of the things I understood early on was that you know. I didn't want anybody else feeling sorry for me that, you know, I could handle that all by myself. Uh, I knew I didn't want to be a victim. Right. Uh, And so um, I wanted to make something good come from this tragedy because 
uh, I believe that the most you can hope for when you lose a child is to try to make something good come from it. Uh, there's really, for me, um, you know, that's the most you can hope for. There's no money. There's nothing anybody can say that can change the fact that your son is gone, but making something good for, come from it uh, is really the most you can hope for. Uh, in an effort to do that, I decided to walk with his ashes from uh, our home here in Gilbert, Arizona, to Kalispell, Montana. And probably the first question is, why would you do that? Um, Kevin grew up here in Arizona, but I grew up in Kalispell, and he always talked about wanting to move there someday and buy a ranch. Um, so I wanted to get him to where he wanted to be someday. That's that's awesome. And you made this journey by yourself? No, actually, uh, so in the beginning, I thought I might walk along the Continental Divide or something, and nobody would really even know uh, I was doing it. Uh, but I decided to, uh, to try to, you know, share his story with as many people as I could along the way. I partnered with an organization called Not My Kid, and um, they set up speaking engagements all along the way. I, I told the story probably 40 or 50 times in a four-month span. Uh, you know, tens of thousands of people, lots of radio and, and television interviews and newspaper articles. Uh, you know, just trying to build awareness. And, and really, when I tell the story, I just tell the story about what happened. I don't really do it. It's not in a preachy way. It's just, you know, here's what happened. Here's what happened. Take care of your kids. Make sure your kids know the dangers. And, you know, there's there, alcohol poisoning is one of those things that, you know, for a while there there were a lot of them reported from, soror, you know, fraternity and sorority um, initiations and alcohol, you know, has been an accepted part of our society for a long time. And people challenge each other to, to drinking contests. And those are the kinds of things that we need kids uh, and grownups. But, you know, kids need to start saying no because they don't know yet how their body is going to react to alcohol. You know, they don't know... Uh, they, they just don't know. They, they don't know enough because they haven't had enough experience with it. And there have been too many parties that have ended in tragedy because all of a sudden somebody passes out and they weren't passed out and they never got back up. Right. That's exactly right. Um, you know, kids don't realize what can happen. And, you know, it's not that I'm, I'm advocating going back to the days of prohibition because that would be silly. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I am advocating is education and helping people understand what the consequences of your decisions will be. Right. Uh, and that's the key thing is, you know, education is, is what I think is really the, uh, the solution is educating people about what can happen. You know, I tell kids all the time, you think, you know, so when you go out drinking, let's list the good things that can happen. But now let's list all of the bad things that can happen. And as you can imagine, the list of bad things is rather long. Yeah. I mean, everything from DUI to dying from alcohol poisoning. And unfortunately, in our country, there are not enough people that understand alcohol poisoning unless you know someone personally who died from it. You know, I mean, uh, it's, it's just one of those things that nobody talks about. And... 
I probably because of uh, the family can be embarrassed that that's how their their child died or you know someone if it's an older person they're just like oh well you know he was an alcoholic and he drank himself to death and they don't realize that you know I mean it is a real problem people's bodies all react differently to alcohol five shots might be totally great for you five shots could kill someone else and also they don't understand that you know don't I mean if you're going to have a drinking game use beer (laughs) you know don't use the bottle of uh, vodka for a drinking game and there's just too much um you know our country doesn't allow marijuana but people don't die from marijuana poisoning and not that i'm advocating it i'm just saying you know something that's legally available in our country um can really can really devastate uh more than just the families of drunk drivers it's the families of the kids and the adults who just overdrink just because they don't know any better yeah, I guess to, to open your eyes to it, um, you can go uh, on Google and type, type in alcohol addiction, and you get somewhere around 87 million hits. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a huge issue. Mm-hmm. And part of your part of your journey was to enlighten people. And where are some of the places that you stopped and spoke? Was it were you speaking at schools? Were you speaking at churches? Where were the places that they had to stop and speak? It was primarily schools, but I did uh, churches, I did uh, treatment facilities, um, you name it. Um, you know, there was kids that were had been caught drinking, uh, and that was part of their uh, punishment, was going to these facilities, and, and I would speak there. Um, so a wide range of, uh, of places, but probably primarily schools, mm-hmm. and primarily schools. Well, because again, you know, older adult, older people, adults can, they can gauge better. They've, you know, they've drunk until they pass out, and it's young kids that don't know their level. And right. the shots are the especially bad thing because when you do, when you just guzzle, you it hasn't hit you because it takes a little while for it all to, but you've multiplied it, and it takes a while before your body catches up and you know, shuts it down, either with you passing out or or worse. Yep, that is exactly correct. Um, okay, so now you're on this journey. Did you decide to write the book while you were walking, before you were walking, or um, how, did, how did that idea come about? Well, I'm probably in a huge minority in terms of authors because uh, I had no interest in writing a book. Um, actually, when I got back from a walk... I told a couple friends, I kept a journal along the way, and, and uh, I told them that I was going to send them a copy of the journal along with some pictures from the walk, and they said, no, 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 you, you have to write a book about this. Uh, and at first I said I wasn't going to do it, uh, but after it, because the last thing I wanted to do was commit to another major project after walking right. 1,400 miles. Um, but after a while, I decided to go ahead and do it. Uh, so, again, I'm, I'm in the far minority in that um, writing a book was never on my bucket list, no. <laughs> okay. Well, and, and that's important to know because a lot of authors or a lot of people listening to this um, podcast in particular, um, maybe someone who, they may be people who've gone through something 
and they kept a journal while they went through, but they think it's only of interest to them and they don't know that it can actually be extremely helpful to other people. And um, I'm talking to myself as well as I'm talking to you. Um, you know, there are people that want to know the story um, and there are other people that don't ever want me to talk about my son passing away. And I think I've finally come to a point where I know that I need to write that book. And you know, yeah, I, I agree. I, I, um, there's a lot of people out there that have incredible stories that have never put them down on paper. And, and it is a lot of work to do it, but it's also helpful because, you know, you get to put together, you know, a story. And I, I think that's sort of healing and helpful both. Well, and it's healing and it's helpful and it's putting something permanent out there to uh, validate his life. You know, yeah. I mean, your son was, prob- you know, I mean, I would assume like any other kid, he was an, an incredible kid. He wasn't a, a drug addict. He wasn't a alcoholic. He just had a bad night. And, yeah. you know, somebody over, you know, they overdid it without knowing what the consequences could be. There was no malicious intent. And his life deserves to be celebrated. And your journey, the walk that you took, why you took it, um, what you did along the way of that journey um, is not only good for awareness to um, on the alcohol poisoning, but it's also an awareness of how to deal with grief. You know, I mean, I was a basket case for three years and, uh, you know, I had other children to take care of. And, um, you know, other parents need to understand that however they choose to grieve is okay. And I think that that's why books like yours are important. You're you're telling two stories. Yeah, I would agree with that. There's there's the part about the alcohol poisoning, but there's also how I dealt with the grief and how I... Um, it feels strange for me to say it, but, you know, other people see that as an inspiration, you know, in terms... Because, let's face it, we're all going to be facing adversity at some point in our lives. And I, when I talk to the kids, I tell them that, too. It's not if you're going to face adversity, it's when you're going to face it. And mm-hmm. it's how you respond to it that largely defines your life. Yeah. And most, you know, a lot of parents don't want to think about losing their child. But again, I live in New York City. Children are dying every day, you know. And I was living in New York City when my son passed away. And I, you know, I I worked for doctors. I worked for a doctor's office at the time, which was part of what um, helped me somewhat. And, you know, one of the doctors was like, I deal with people every day who've lost their children. And, you know, you look around New York City and because it's so concentrated, there's 8 million people here. You know, it's a very concentrated population and you watch the news every night. And, you know, you think to yourself, I thought to myself, why am I, you know, I I can't excuse myself for grieving. You know, I can't make myself stop grieving. But I also think about how do all these other parents do it? How do you get through it? How do you move on? And, you know, again, you have to grieve in your own way. How long after he passed away did you start the walk? It took, um, so he died in uh, July 2005, and I started on the walk in February of 2007. 
you know, we had logistical things to consider because uh, I thought about taking off that uh, next year, but I, we really weren't ready to go, and I couldn't leave in the winter time. No, uh, <laughs> there would be weather issues uh, that would be a little tough to deal with, and I couldn't go in the summertime because all the schools were closed. Okay, uh, so that sort of settled on leaving in late February uh, in 2007. So it was about a year and a half. Yeah. After so you were already dealing with a lot of the grief issues and you you were still at the point where you realized that I, I know what it is a, a year and a half in and it's it's still not good <laughs> and yeah. uh, for grief issues that you uh, that I personally took a while to come to grips with uh, the part about forgiveness yeah uh, you know I you know Kevin was my son it's easy to forgive him um, and I had forgiven the people at the party because ultimately this was Kevin's decision. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the person that is the hardest to forgive is yourself. And, yep. and you see this in, uh, you know, when they talk about uh, the veterans from Iraq and Afghanistan, they talk about struggling to forgive themselves for what happened to one of their buddies. And, you know, that forgiving yourself for what happened is, such an important part of the healing process in my opinion absolutely i you know every single day i replayed in my mind and i'm like he didn't have to get in that car he didn't have to go he didn't have to he you know my son was killed in the car accident uh it was raining they should have not gone yet they you know and it's just you know he was the only one even injured in the in the accident and the police didn't think, you know, they didn't do measurements or anything to see if there was any, um, you know, alcohol involved or anything like that because they didn't, um, he was ejected from the car, but he wasn't, you know, they didn't know he was critically injured yet. So it was, you run through your head and you go, I told him he didn't have to go. I wish he would stay home. I wish I got home earlier that day. You run through this in your mind, whether it's logical or not. And my other son looked at me and said, Mom, if he had stayed home, he would have died choking on a potato chip or something that night. He was, that was his time. And you still can't, you don't get it. You, you know, it takes you a long time to get that through your head. Yeah, it's a forgiving, forgiving yourself is, is by far uh, the most difficult thing to do, but... Um you have to do it or, you know, it will destroy you. I mean, I'm sure you've heard the stories, too, about parents who have lost children, and it, it destroys their lives. Mm-hmm. Yep. And I got to say that if I didn't have my other child that relied on me and my daughter and, you know, other people around that really needed me, um, I... You know, I got I got to that point where I didn't want to be around anymore. I mean, I never really thought about killing myself, but I really got to the point where, why bother? And, you know, I warned people around me. I said, if I get to a point where I feel even worse about this, I will check myself into a hospital. And so if you get a phone call, you need to come here and take care of your brother because I'm going to, you know, I, I'm that close that I will hospitalize myself. You know, I wouldn't. I wouldn't take my own life, but you do get to that point where you're like, why bother? And yep. and then that upsets the rest Be of your family. Yeah. And, you know, that upsets everybody else in the family. 
because then they're like, well, was he the most important thing in our lives? You don't care about me anymore, you know, and, and you have to balance. I mean, you know, uh, my son that, that died a few years after his brother looked at me, you know, like a year after his brother died and, and said, Mom, I'm still here. <laughs> you know, I'm, I, I haven't died. And uh, it, it, it really just is a very long process. And I'll share one last thing before we get back to you. Um, I was at an event the weekend after my son died and a woman came up to me um, I used to show cats and um, you know there's kind of a hierarchy you know there's the people who win all you know win all the time and then there's the people like us that you know were we were around but we weren't anything in the upper echelon type of thing and a woman that had never spoken to me before you know more than just a passing glance um, walked over to me and she gave me a hug and she said to me, my son died when he was 21 years old, 21 years ago today. And I know what you're going through, and I'm not going to tell you that it's going to get better. She says, I'm going to tell you that it's going to get worse, and then it's going to be tolerable. She says, it will never get better, but you will learn to live with it. And on my worst days, that woman's words were the ones that I stuck with. And... You know, you you took a very long journey, and I, I'm sure planning the journey was part of your healing process as well. Sure, it was. And now, um, you're to get more technical about your book. Where did you self-publish it? Did a publishing house pull it pull it together for you? What happened? Well, I sent out a few letters to major publishing, you know, to agents and that sort of thing, and and got either no response or thanks but no thanks um, and then I started looking at the self-publishing stuff um, and and there's lots of good ones out there um, but I didn't feel like I saw you know they were they were interested in helping me publish the book but no marketing personal interest in the marketing or any of that sort of stuff and so, um, and, and anyone can do this, uh, I basically became my own publisher. Uh, you know, I found a guy to edit the book. Uh, I used uh, book clubs to uh, critique the book, which, by the way, was one of the best things uh, I did. Uh, I gave the uh, book club uh, copies of the book as I had it. I had them read it, and I went back to the meeting with them first question was, what did you like about the book? They told me all the things they liked about it, but the real question was, now every one of you has to tell me one thing you did not like about the book. Oh, I like that. And that was really the nuggets I was looking for. What What did you think I was missing? What, what did you think I should have talked about more? And um, that was very helpful. So, I mean, there's lots of editors out there that can help you edit uh, a book. Um, I found someone to design the cover. Um, There's lots of printers out there that print on demand. Uh, I used one here in Phoenix, uh, Snowfall Press. Um, And then, so, we print the book from there for the website. 
Uh, I use CreateSpace and Amazon for the Amazon part of it. That's really a pretty painless process once you get your ISBN number and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, you just upload the cover and upload the uh, text, and next thing you know, you've got a book. Yeah. Um, now, is it available electronically on the Kindle as well, or is it only available in print? Yeah, it's, it's available um, on the Nook. It's available on iBooks. It's available, uh, the Kindle is available uh, both from and from the, uh, the website. So That's great. And, you know, you've hit upon what a lot of authors are telling me is that, you know, first of all, you don't want to wait two years for a traditional publisher to get it out. Once you, like you said, you're you're the accidental author. You know, you're not an author that that had that grew up thinking you had a book inside you to write, and um, you needed people to help you out. But once you were done with the book, you wanted to be done with the book. <laughs> yeah. Right. You know, you didn't want to. You know, you didn't you didn't want an agent and a long term relationship with a publisher. You just wanted the book to go. And then, you know, do what you need to do to market it, but let it tell its story and just get it out there. And um, I think through a traditional publisher, you know, they have a formula the way they want some a book like that to read. And, you know, they want to make things more dramatic than they are. And, you know, they would maybe do a cover that you didn't like and tell the story in a way that wasn't true to you you know, just because they want to make it fit their formulas. So this way, you got it edited the way you wanted it. You know, um, you had a cover designed by someone that was good at uh, designing covers. And I love the book club idea, you know. just You just reached out to a local book club and said, here's, here's the book, tell me what you like and tell me what you don't like. And I, I think that's great. I've talked to a lot of people that use beta authors and I know I kind of did that when I was pushing one book around but you know it's it's a really good idea to get out there to someone who doesn't know who isn't close to the story and have them tell you the things that they didn't get you know I didn't understand this or like you said what should I have talked about that I didn't talk about and just start the writing process and get you know I had 230 or 250 pages down on paper within six months, but it's it's putting that in a way that uh, somebody can read it that knows nothing about the story that um, is where all of the work comes in. Yeah. Uh, when I tell people, I've had people ask me questions, and I tell them, when you're creating, just write, and don't worry about anything else except writing. Mm-hmm. Editing, that's a completely different animal. Uh, you know, Stephen King, actually, of all the books I read about writing, he has a book on writing that I would recommend to anybody because after reading that, I understood sort of why I did things. I was doing things similar to what he talked about, but, um, you know, he goes through what his process is. I you know, totally forgot. Did. I totally forgot about that book until just now. I read that years ago. I, I got to go yeah. dig that back out. You're and you are exactly right. He went through his process and said, "Just, just do it." And then, when you after you're done the creative process, then is he's probably one of the guys who said, "Let it sit for a little while and then come back to it." Yep. Yep. Exactly. Let it sit for a little while, and 
you know, uh, he talked about how when you're doing that, he, he would close the door to his office. He didn't want anyone talking to him. He didn't want any interaction with people. And uh, my wife was very tolerant of that. I said, I don't want to talk to anybody. I don't want, don't come in and ask me anything. You know, just, just let me do my thing and, and follow a thought process through. And that's, um, you know, when you're in that creative part of it, that's really important to just follow the thought process. Don't worry about whether it's all written perfectly. Just follow the thought process. Well, and it's good to hear that your wife was supportive throughout this whole thing. I was already divorced when my child died, and I didn't want to have anything to do with having to help anybody else get through the grieving process. I literally uh, looked at everyone in my family, and I said, don't expect me to be emotionally available to you because right now I'm totally shattered. And um, and my daughter and my, my other son got, you know, they understood and they, they got through it, but I didn't have a spouse either for support or non-support. So I'm glad that you had uh, the support of your wife going through that too. She had her own grief process to go through, which I'm sure was different than what you went through. Yep. Exactly. Right. All right. Well, um, if you now for since this is kind of aimed at accidental writers, if you uh, if you're talking to somebody and and you know they think they have a story in, in inside them and they haven't started it yet, what would your advice be? Just start writing again. Um, don't don't critique. I think. And you can probably relate to this. Sometimes you think as soon as you start writing, you have to make it perfect the first time through. Mm-hmm. And I tell you how many, I think I was on revision 50-some uh, <laughs> before I got through. Um, just start writing and write down what you know, what you're thinking about, and get all of that stuff in whatever order down on paper uh, at least from my perspective, and then you can go back and start trying to put it in some sort of order uh, that makes sense. But, you know, just, and it can be your own voice. Everybody's writing style is different. Um, you know, I wanted to make sure that I wrote this in a way that if one of my friends picked it up, they would say, yeah, he said that. Mm-hmm. I can believe about that. Um, and And sometimes... Uh, writing classes teach you how to write, but everybody has their own style, and it's that unique style that quite often comes out and makes a book stand out. Yeah, and that that's really true. Like when you go to when you go to writing classes, there's all these formulas and genres and all this other stuff. But basically, what it comes down to is you're a storyteller, and you have a story to tell, and you know you go ahead and go through the process of getting it out and then you go through the process of fixing it up and making it so other people can understand the story and it's and I have to commend you for going through the process I I really do Um, like I said the first three years I was I was a basket case I could barely function day to day and um for you to be able to have gone through and, you know, maybe it's because you had the support of your wife and you you had a goal that you knew you wanted to achieve for him and, and you took the time to plan out the walk 
And like you said, you had no intention of writing a book when you went on the walk. You went on the walk for the sake of going on the walk and for making his life stand up for something by doing your talks all along the way. So one thing I didn't mention uh, was how the idea to actually walk there came about. Um, as I said, uh, you know, we wanted to take his ashes to Montana. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know whether um, anybody up there will remember the movie Lonesome Dove um, at Tommy Lee Jones and Robert Duvall. If you haven't seen it, it's, uh, it's not a four-hour movie, but it's a real good movie. Um, and that was one of Kevin's favorite movies. And suffice to say, there's a point where one of the characters takes the body of one of the other characters back to Texas to bury him where he was the happiest. In the movie, it's a Western. He did it on horseback. Uh, I figured if I did it on horseback, I would probably never make it. So uh, <laughs> I decided to walk. <laughs> well, yeah, horses aren't allowed a lot of places. In Arizona, you can have them almost anywhere. But once you got out of Arizona, you were in trouble. Yeah, riding with a horse next to the highway seemed like a hazardous thing to do. It was hazardous enough, hazardous enough to walk. Now, now, there's an interesting question. Did you walk along... Um, did you walk along major highways? Did you take back roads? How did you, you know, did you have somebody following you in a car that could could help you out if you, you know, got tired or? Well, the first thing to say is that I did not sleep under any bridges. Um, <laughs> I, I stayed in uh, hotels every night. Uh, my daughter and her fiance uh, walked uh, quite a bit of it. They would alternate days with me. Okay. And then my wife met me about, once we settled into a routine, she met me about every three and a half miles, and I would take a break, get a bite to eat, stretch, do those things. It took me a while to figure out it really wasn't a race. Right. Um, yeah, I walked along. I didn't walk along any freeways. Um, I stayed off the freeways, uh, but there was plenty of rather busy roads. Right. So, uh, And people, it's amazing when you get out, uh, people stopped every day to talk to me and see what was going on or ask me if I needed a ride. You know, is everything okay? Because uh, when you're out in the middle of nowhere and you're walking along the road, uh, there's a lot of people wondering, well, why is he walking out here? Especially <laughs> through especially through Arizona and Utah. And <laughs> yeah, in Utah and Iowa, well, and even Montana, there's a lot of wide open space out there. and. It's a long ways between towns, and yep. people would be in stop. And if if it was a rainy or a snowy day, uh, I might get five, six, seven, eight people stop and talk to me and see if I needed a ride. They're like, well, he's w- we're walking out here in the rain and the snow. Mm-hmm. Uh, I ought to stop and see if he needs a ride. <laughs> and that's a good testament to um, you know to the American culture still that there are still people out there that will. Um, stop and and be helpful and and see if you need something and you know we get so jaded and think that you know it's that people don't help each other anymore and and they still do even in New York City where people don't think anybody helps anybody (laughs) yeah you know that that, that's the one thing that you learn is that there's still a lot of really good people out there I mean uh, I had ladies bring me brownies and milk Um, (laughs) I'll never forget a guy who stopped uh, he was driving an old Datsun, which that tells you how old it was. It's probably a 72 Datsun. And he stopped and talked to me for a while, and he's an older gentleman. 
Um, and when we got through with it, he handed me $5 and said, make sure you go get yourself something to eat when you're done tonight. Aww. And there's part of me that did not want to take that because, uh, you know, the idea of the walk wasn't to raise money. Right. People contributed, but uh, that wasn't the idea. But to deny them that joy of saying they helped in some small way, um, you know, you can't do that. You get it. You understand that. There are so many people out there that do not understand that. And I learned it a long time ago. And... People are like, I don't want to take a handout. I don't want to take money from somebody. They aren't offering you their house or whatever. They're offering you just something to say that they participated and they helped and they they gave you something, you know. Yeah, I am that joy. Yeah, they they it, it's joyful for them to do it. And yeah. I, know, I know so many people that are like, no, it's charity. No, it's not charity. It's it's giving somebody that joy. I'm so glad you understand that. Because yeah. uh, it's mostly men that don't get it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Women get it and men don't. It's plenty of time to think when you're walking 14 miles every day. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and that's a, you know, I mean, and, and it's it's day after day. You know, were there times that you had to stay overnight a couple of days, or did you just go straight through? No, we went straight through. I uh, I averaged about 90 miles a week, and I had given myself a little bit of margin because we had to set up a date for the finish in, in Kalispell. Uh, but I didn't have a single sick day or weather day uh, in four months. There were some days I didn't feel well, and the weather wasn't good, but I always figured, well, it could be worse tomorrow. Yeah. You know, so I better walk today in case it's worse tomorrow. And uh, honestly, the further I went, the better I felt. Um, Getting out of Arizona was uh, a lot of work. Until you really settle into a routine, um, I will say it was a little uncomfortable at times. But um, the further I went, when I got into Idaho and Montana, I was settled into a routine. And yeah, I'm tired at the end of the day, but I know exactly what to expect. Right. Uh, such a story. Um, and I love the fact that you sort of self-published. <laughs> you, you got out there and, and you found what you needed. I am my own publisher, which people ask me that all the time as well. It's me. <laughs> it's me. It's, Anyone I, can do that. If I can figure, I tell everybody, it's like I talk about the walk. If I can pull off something like this. Imagine what somebody that really has their active other could do. Um, you know, it, it just, anymore, there's so much information out there. And, you know, I think people tend to worry about that last step in finding a publisher. Um, you'll get there. There's, there's authors clubs and, uh, you know, you, there's lots of self-publishing uh, organizations out there. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with all of them or most of them. Um, and they'll help you with that process. There's no doubt about that. And and that's important for writers to know. Um, my day job is internet marketing, and a lot of people work from home, and, and they're um, isolated from everybody else. But we have um, we now have monthly meetups across the country, and we have conventions twice a year that we all go to. And 
you know, where you can do face-to-face and, and meet people and not be isolated anymore. And writers are another group of people that are that are pretty isolated and, you know, they need to reach outside their comfort zone and uh, find somebody, you know, you, it, it, you can't do it all alone. You can independently publish, you know, or self-publish or whatever you want to call it, but you really do need people to help you along the way. Don't put that manuscript up there without having somebody else read it and somebody else proofread it and you know somebody else critique it for you um, yeah because you know, that I had heard too when I did this a lot was uh, reading out loud uh, yeah oh, yeah that's that's exactly what I wanted to say and then you read it out loud or have somebody else read it out loud to you and a lot of times you'll go wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't sound right <laughs> That does not sound right. I need to fix that. Make a note. <laughs> yep, and that's uh, that's one of the things that I haven't done yet that I need to do. My son did write some fiction, and um, I need to I need to do something with it because I made a promise to him uh, two weeks before he passed away. Actually, he said, "What will happen to my work?" Uh, he was a prolific writer. And he was at NYU in a writing program. And he said, what will happen in my work if something happens to me? And I said, I will get it out there for people to read and, and get and enjoy. And I'm still working on that. And one of the things I did is I published one of his fiction books, but I didn't do it right. And I know I didn't do it right. And it is out there, and a lot of people have downloaded it, and a lot of people have read it and purchased it and, and this and that. But the book isn't what the book is supposed to be because I didn't go through all the steps. And I did have other people critique it and all that kind of stuff, but I never read it out loud. And I think that's what is missing from that book. Um, one, of, one person who read it for me recently said, there's no emotional connection to the good guy that makes you root for him over the antagonist. So right. I'm like, oh, that's a problem. <laughs> yeah. There are fundamental things that they teach in those. Uh, you know, you uh, you want to want to root for the good guy, and uh, um, the more things you can do to make them want to root for the good guy, uh, the better off you are. I mean, I the interesting thing for me is that. Uh, you know, people have told me that uh, they both laughed and cried when they read the book. And I said, well, then I guess I've done my job because, uh, you know, you want to make an emotional connection uh, to the good guy in the book and, you know, root for them to get done with whatever they want to do or what they're trying to do. Yeah, and that's excellent. That's that's just... that that. Like you said, you want to make them cry, but you want to make them laugh. You want to make them feel the pain, but you want to make them feel the joy. So, yeah, and that you know, and that's the thing is that it takes a while to develop your sense of humor again after you lose a child, but it is possible to do it. Uh, you know, we still laugh about ourselves. We laugh. We talk about Kevin all the time. You know, I I personally think it's therapeutic to do that. So. Yeah. Not like he never existed. And sometimes yeah. people are afraid to say anything uh, about, you know, when you lose a child, they're afraid to say anything about the child. But uh, I love talking about him. I still do. Yeah, because he was a great kid. He just, yeah. you know, his life ended the way too soon. 
um, one of the hardest things for me was uh, when I would finally let myself get out and talk to people and I would meet new people and they would be parents and they would say so how many children do you have and I would automatically say three. Oh well you know how old are they um, <laughs> yeah. um, one of them is 28 the other one is 26 and the other one died yeah. and then you know you don't know how to answer the question and, and then you like everything becomes awkward so you know um, it's something that you learn to deal with but it's also something that the first few times you hear it it's just like you just uh, you know you go in your head and and you're like how should I answer this question you know oh I have a daughter now (laughs) I have a grandson and uh, you know for people who didn't know my boys, it's easier to not go through the whole story. And, you know, because then you're not talking about simple small talk anymore. So, you know, to make it easier yeah. on people, it's just, oh, I have a daughter and a grandson. And if it comes up later on, yes, I had two boys and this is what they did and 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 whatnot. But, yeah. um, and... I just, I just love what you did so much. I know I've said that several times, but, I mean, you did the perfect combination of awareness and grieving, and then in the end of it, you know, other people told you that you needed to write the book. And the book is the culmination of everything else you did up until then. And that's something that a lot of writers that have gone through painful experiences need to understand is, and you said it, it's therapeutic. It is, it's going to help you understand. It's going to help you teach others. And it's also going to let people know that they're not alone. Too many people think that they're the only ones going through something and that they're, you know, I didn't want to hear about it. You know, people wanted me to give me books on grieving and I'm like, nope, I don't want to hear about it. Yeah, that's a, and, and that's the thing. It, it, the book doesn't really deal with grieving directly uh, it's more you know what I decided to do and in an indirect way it is but um, as I said it sort of serves as an inspiration to other people and I, and I always say if I could pull off something like that imagine what you could do yeah you took people on a journey you went on a journey and it was yeah. you know it started because of a bad experience but it ended being something that your family did together and that's what I was getting at when I was asking if you if you did it alone I wanted to know if you you know like you said your daughter and your wife you know they would drive up and you know stop and they were they made the journey with you they just didn't do the walking with you you did the walk by yourself yep basically how it went all right well uh, you know they've done it by themselves but um, I don't know I had no intention of doing this one by myself. Yeah. And that's... Things just go the way we don't expect them to go. (laughs) It's just... That's just the way it is. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your story. I know it's got to still be difficult to to talk about it, even though you've gone through, um, you know, all the the book publicity and the, the walk and the speech, you know, the speaking and everything else. There's always that little tug at your heartstring every time you have to tell the story again. 
and um, I want to applaud you once more for being brave enough to share your story and your journey and um, I hope it, it inspires someone else to share their story and their journey thank you uh, now tell people where they can find you on the internet a lot of our folks listen via iTunes and they are actually on our show notes page yeah so uh, the website is kevinslastwalk.com um, twitter is at kevinslastwalk uh, facebook is kevinslastwalk um, yeah if you google any of those if you google Kevin's Last Walk or anything you'll and obviously you can connect Facebook and Twitter on the website. Right. Awesome. Um, well, thanks again. And uh, for all those of you that would like to read the show notes and find out a little bit more, get the links directly to the book or whatever, come on over to Book Goodies, B-O-O-K-G-O-O-D-I-E-S.com. And you can find them both. You can also connect with us on Twitter.com slash Book Goodies and Facebook.com slash Book Goodies. And we also want to thank geekcast.fm for hosting our podcasts. And I want to thank Kevin again for sharing part of his day and part of his life with us. And um, if you want to know more about me, you can go to debracarney.com. And folks, uh, thank you for listening and get out there and get writing and have a great day. <laughs>